0: Hello, friends. This is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you can do me a favor, we're actually looking for really good feedback. We've got a lot of it. But if you could do me a favor, go ahead and hit subscribe, hit subscribe, and also drop in a rating in your iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, please do. It helps us to kind of get bumped up. Uh, We've got a ton of great guests. And in fact, this is uh, one of the most amazing episodes. Again, uh, just they're stacking up so good. But This episode, I want to give a shout out to my friends and the sponsors at Veeam Software. So make sure before you jump into the show, head on over to Veeam Software. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, and they will have you covered for all your data protection needs, whether it's on-premises, in the cloud, Office 365, physical servers, cloud native. Holy heck, that's a ton of great stuff. So I'm a longtime fan of the platform and the team. Please do check them out. Uh, It's a big big support they've been giving me both in my blog and the podcast. So go to vee.am forward slash disco posse. Also brought to you today by Velocity Closing and the four step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. This is a book that I've actually authored and I'm sharing with the community because of all the stuff that I've learned through my work and years of experience in delivering analysts and customer demos. This is a great, really rapid-fire e-book that's going to give you all the tools you need to give better demos, connect with your customers, and even have an audiobook and a course that goes along with it if you jump in. So go to VelocityClosing.com and you can check it out yourself. This show features Ron Rock. Ron is the CEO at MicroShare. They started off in an area of of enterprise scale IoT integration for real time systems, and it inevitably had to morph with what 2020 delivered to the world. So we're going to talk about how they're using it for infection control, predictive cleaning, occupancy and asset zoning, and some really, really cool stuff. More than anything, Ron shares how they pivoted, how they survived a real tough challenge, and tons of great business lessons. He's just a fantastic human. So I loved this show. I hope you love it as much as I do. Check it out.
1: Hello, my name's Ron Rock. I'm the CEO of Microshare, and we are on the Disco Posse podcast. You're listening to
0: the Disco Posse podcast. And with that, we uh, we begin. This is a, uh, uh, a fun one because I've got a real sort of adoration for what you're doing at a, a personal level, Ron. You've got an incredible, uh, like a storied history. You've tackled some stuff, which most people would say is not a simple thing, nor even a smart thing to tackle. But you've made a point of, I like the way you describe it as, Connecting the dots before people realize there are dots there. <laughs> and most importantly, with everything that's kind of in the throes of what we're going on in the world, you're doing some amazing stuff with MicroShare. And so I thought this is a perfect time. But even beyond that, you, you've got a great story. So, Ron, if you want to just quickly introduce yourself, talk about let's talk about MicroShare, uh, kind of the problems you're solving, and then we're going to go a bit into how you chose to take on this challenge.
1: Sure, thanks, Eric. Uh, a real pleasure to be here. So, thank you. <clears throat> so, again, name of the company is Microshare. I'm one of the three co-founders. We started the company back in December uh, this year, eight years ago. So, we're we're one of those eight-year overnight success stories.
0: <laughs> it's so, a beautiful thing, isn't it?
1: <laughs> ab- ab- absolutely. So, so uh, my founders, my my co-founders, and I have been together for a long time. Uh, We started a company back in 2003 called knowledge rules. We grew that company globally sold it to Accenture in 2010 And our clients were some of the biggest companies in the world GE HSBC JP Morgan Chase and so think about big scalable secure resilient data. That's our background. So so we're the data guys, the data that can't be lost, that has to be secured. Most likely it's regulated by governments, by industries. So we kind of grew up in in this very big, complex data environment. The data that can't go away, that can't go down. So MicroShare, we decided to take all of that knowledge and apply it to this new world of IoT, Internet of Things. Back in 1989, folklore has it. The first IOT machine was a Coca-Cola machine on MIT's campus. (laughs) It had a a, a 9600 baud modem in it. And when that Coke machine started to run low, it automatically dialed out to the distributor and it said, Hey, come fill me up before I run out of soda. And IOT was going to change our lives. We were going to have flying cars. None of us were going to be working and we'd all be living to be 150 years old. That was the promise of IoT. Well, it never really materialized. And there are lots of reasons why. Uh, First and foremost, it's really hard to do. But also in the 90s and the 2000s, the technology infrastructure just wasn't there. It was expensive to think about sensors. We didn't have wireless communication the way that we have today. We didn't have standards like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and all of the ubiquitous communications protocols that are at our fingertips right now. And we didn't have the cloud. So fast forward to the last three years and Amazon and Azure, Microsoft and IBM and Google all have cloud infrastructure that costs pennies a day to get started and run. We have so much sophisticated wireless technology that now we can find sensors for sometimes under $20 with a five-year battery life. You bring all that technology together and suddenly IOT, IoT isn't that elusive vision of the future. It's something that we can deliver today. So Microshare leverages our data expertise, only now it's not 50 or 100 backend legacy systems in financial services or healthcare or insurance. Now it's billions of sensors out there in the world, all with their own unique data format, encryption, sovereignty issues, regulated issues, privacy issues, all of those attributes of lots and lots of data. We bring all that together in really simple to understand business solutions. We bundle it all together, the sensor, the software, the cloud, everything, and just bring simple business solutions to IOT. Specifically, we could have done this across any industry. We decided to do it in commercial real estate. And we define commercial real estate as pretty much everything but residential. And so it includes hospitals, but not touching the patient. It includes airports, but not touching the airplanes. Even though we came from that regulated industry, I've also been a lifelong entrepreneur. And one of the challenges is always, how do you begin to scale? And so going after unregulated industries, turns out real estate's not regulated. Everybody in the world has it. It's usually one of the most expensive things on your income statement after your, your salaries and real estate has traditionally been underserved from a uh, technology and an investment perspective. So we started with things like occupancy, predictive cleaning, environmental monitoring, waste management, smart parking, all of those kinds of solutions. And we targeted real estate owners, tenants, and facilities management companies that clean and manage and take care of those companies. And so today, if you go to Microshare's website, Microshare.io or Microshare.com, you will find that you have to dig quite a bit to find IoT. I like to say tongue in cheek, most of my customers can't spell IoT. (laughs) We, We have a catalog of business solutions that people buy, they sense it, it's sensing as a service. So it's a leasing model. And that's really what we've been doing for the last uh, seven and a half years.
0: Now, it was when I opened and I said, sort of the the two prong challenge that you choose to take on and your founders have done as well with you. And it's a tough statement and probably sounds a little harsh sometimes when I say it's it's, they're not easy and they're not smart. Not that it's not smart to take it on, but most entrepreneurs would look at the, the areas that you've chosen to, to to move into as a vertical or as a, as a general business, and they see struggle. And most or many venture capitalist entrepreneurs, they have one single responsibility, to put money into something and get more than that money back, hopefully 10X plus. You have to really, you think about the long game very much in kind of the problems that you're solving, but in doing so, I think it's the most admirable kind of approach because you have to think, we're gonna be, it's gonna take us eight years to become an overnight success, but in doing so, if you don't do it, no one can do it in three. And it's so hard sometimes to find people that have that length of the you know, a vision that can carry an execution plan, I can survive. And also, along the way, like you said, you know, if you came in, everybody would have been like, Oh, yeah, we're an IoT company. And it, it was sound it was like the new hotness eight years ago, or seven years ago, and 60 years ago. And then all of a sudden, IoT kind of like, no one knew what it actually was, so they stopped talking about it. And then you realized when they stopped talking about it, that's when it was really happening. <laughs> because it wasn't hype cycle anymore, and that, and that kind of thing. So how how did you know that you were heading into something that had a long and vigorous tail to the potential for a business?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And if I had known, if I knew that, or if I ever know that, then I'm on a much higher pay grade than I'm doing. <laughs> so, so um, you know, first first, I, I, I like to share with many uh, early entrepreneurs and, and well-seasoned entrepreneurs like myself that we collaborate often. 90 percent of our job is rejection. 95 percent of our job is rejection. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to be selling this thing called an IBM personal computer before anybody thought it was going to matter. Uh, I was selling um, cloud before anybody thought that the cloud was real. I was selling um, uh, l- local area networking and wireless communication long before you know it, r- before it became mainstream. So my partners and I have always been, there's a term ahead of our skis, way ahead of our skis. And technology doesn't always play out the way you think it's going to. The technology itself moves faster than you think, and the adoption in the marketplace moves slower than you think. And so I often describe the the goal uh, there's, a, uh, there, there, there's There was a popular U.S. defense system that that everybody learned about uh, during one of the early Gulf Wars in the, in the early 90s called the Patriot Missile System. And a Patriot Missile can shoot another missile out of the air in mid-flight. And I described the, the goal of a good entrepreneur is to be able to do the same thing with your company. That, that missile or the market is moving at 1,000 miles an hour. The technology is moving at 2,000 miles an hour and you've got one shot and from hundreds of miles away, you have to aim and shoot and begin adjusting along the way, lots of pivots, lots of fine tuning. So at some point at that moment in time, you get the combustion of everything hits at once. That's really hard to do on the long run. And it took us a good solid six years to finally hone in on what we thought was the right explosive market. We started out doing things that were not commercial real estate. We started doing a lot of custom uh, custom software projects. There's, there's a, a, a real temptation to entrepreneurs. Typically, you know, you're smarter than the average bear, you've got some good technology skills. And so clients come to you and they say, yeah, we wanna buy your product. But then when what you learn is that they're going to take your product and they're going to slide it in to this very complicated ecosystem. And it's going to take thousands of hours of customization. And you get to bill for that customization an hourly rate. My one partner, my CTO calls it crack because (laughs) it gets really, it feels really good. You start generating revenue, you start getting cash flow. And it gets really hard to take yourself off of that crack. And go back to the discipline of a product company if you can get there you should be able to sell millions of copies of your product exactly the same and the the analogy i use often is microsoft excel which is an absolutely brilliant product microsoft sells excel to pretty much every company in the world They don't care if you are a government, if you're nuclear power plants, if you're military, if you're a bank, if you're manufacturing, if you're a college student, everybody gets the exact same copy of Excel. But the moment you open it up and start using it, your Excel's very different than mine. You begin customizing it to do whatever you wanna do. What we kept reeling ourselves back off, weaning ourselves off of that crack cocaine called professional services, and back to the discipline of building a product, a product that could be rinse and repeat, scalable, sell the same thing over and over. So you take that as your overarching goal. You take the complexity of a market moving at one speed, technology evolving so much faster. When we started the company, cloud as we know it today didn't exist. Sensors, the way that we are using them and the protocol, LoRa, this low power wide area network technology was not even part of the mainstream. And so we've had major injections of new technology along the way, moving very quickly. And at the same time, we've been working with some customers for four and five years. They operate at a big enterprise pace. They have lots of process, they have procurement, and you can't change those. And so you're constantly juggling all of these things to try and create that Patriot missile moment, that, that combustion. And I would say that we we saw the opportunity in our sights. We knew that we were on the right track about six years ago. Took us another two years to really perfect the packaging, the pricing, the positioning, and the discipline to keep saying no to really exciting opportunities that represented one-time revenue hits. We had one opportunity in Germany. It was a four and a half million dollar deal. It was so tempting. My investors wanted me to do it. We, we kept courting and dancing with this customer. We got right down to it and suddenly I'm looking at the SOW and I'm looking at the specs. And I said to my partners, if we do this, we will not realize our vision of where we want to be as a company. And we had the courage and the audacity, uh, and the stupidity, <laughs> to say no to that to that that uh, piece of business. They're the hard things that are, that 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 are part of I think uh, grow, growing a company. So the, the the you know we we didn't have the vision as clearly baked out as it you know i I'd love to say Eric. This was in the bag eight years ago. No <laughs> yeah, exactly. Granted. No, 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 no. I didn't know we would be doing IoT to the level we're doing it. I didn't know we'd be focusing on low power, wide area network sensors, which is a big deal. No batteries, stick and scan, put them anywhere. I didn't know that Azure, Microsoft would, that we would do the partnership we did. We went all in with Microsoft two years ago as well. It's been a major shift in our focus and our uh, our partnership today, Microsoft brings us into some of the biggest companies in the world. And that endorsement saves us nine months of selling and credibility building because the client goes to Microsoft and they say, use microshare. And there we are, all of that took years to put into place, but we're at a point now where the market's exploding. The uh, demand for what we were doing before COVID-19 was very strong we were selling globally most of our customers are in europe and asia pacific uh we are slowly getting some traction in north america you doing this podcast out of toronto uh canada is further ahead in these types of solutions than the united states is Uh, our technologies allow you to reduce your carbon footprint allow you to run a building more efficiently Minimize your energy consumption, improve your carbon footprint, sustainability, ESG are all drivers for why people buy the kind of solutions that we do. Uh, Allows big facilities management companies who run on razor thin margins to clean buildings more efficiently. Here's a radical idea. Why don't I just clean the space that's used? Why don't I start looking at how bathrooms and conference rooms and, co- and, and cafeterias are used and begin creating predictive cleaning models so I can start to look at the weather forecast based on the time of year and know with very high degrees of precision exactly how that building's gonna behave, what it's gonna need. Turns out that nothing breaks, nothing gets dirty, nothing deteriorates if people don't show up. So occupancy is the tip of the spear for everything that we do. And suddenly these inanimate objects become living, breathing entities. And you can begin managing and maximizing all of that investment and create tremendous value on your income statement, create tremendous value for the planet and create real value for all of your constituents, your employees, your customers, your partners, people that use your facilities, whether it be a hospital, a college campus, an office building, a warehouse, an airport, all of these kinds of things benefit from the comprehensive solutions that we put together. So that's new thinking to a lot of people. We you know, we took us a long time to get a few global contracts with large facilities management companies. And we're just chugging along coming out of uh, 2019, our best quarter ever was Q4. We come into Q1 of 2020, we land a couple global deals. Life is just ready to kick back and enjoy the, the benefits of our success. And the week of March 16th happens. The world and changed. This, this thing that I was running around the world, I spend most of my time in London uh, and then Philadelphia and Boston, that's where we're located. And out of London, I travel extensively uh, around the globe. And I was in denial, as is most people. You know, we're reading about this thing since about the beginning of February, it starts to pop up. And and right up until March sixteenth, which was a Monday I'm still running around London, meeting people for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even though a lot of the restaurants are now doing just uh, one one dining room out of five. Uh, People were saying, hey, if you can eat outside, eat outside. London on March 16th, not a lot of outdoor dining. Not
0: a lot of outdoor dining, yeah.
1: (laughs) uh, uh, And the week of March 16th, the State Department said, hey, Americans living abroad or working abroad, if you don't come home, soon, you may be stuck indefinitely. And all of a sudden, my clients and I I live in in, right in downtown London, everywhere around me was starting to shut down. And and so that's when we realized that this thing was real and it was changing everything. And it had a fundamental impact on our company because all the success we had in Q1, those clients canceled. They were global, Office share companies—they were global accounting and consulting companies where their employees were no longer com- going to come to work. Their revenue models were changing, yeah. and so all this great infrastructure that we supply as a company was important, but it could easily now be moved to the back burner. <clears throat> so that's our—that's that—that's a, a long answer to your question. But uh, here we are, eight years later, and we're we're, we're the the Patriot missile we we haven't hit it yet but we're we're right about there and I don't think we're going to miss it. The
0: the interesting thing about this is the patience that's needed and in a way there's a weird thing where you never like to say as a the positive result of of covid changing the way that we behave as humans as businesses is that it reintroduced the need for patience which i felt was kind of running away from us and i also have the advantage i'm an older older gentleman than who i was when i was that you know crazy kid who would work crazy hours and do whatever it needed to be now the you know work smarter not harder mentality is something we get told by our 45 year old colleagues as 20 year old employees and now I'm I'm like that guy that was at the start of Full Metal Jacket getting his head shaved and now I'm at the end of the movie where I'm the one bringing in the next class and I realized that me telling them about patience was they weren't going to listen cuz I wouldn't listen to me I'm I'd I'd say whatever old man I got this <laughs> but now I think as a world as a society we've started to remind ourselves that we have to be patient and Like believe me, I trade, I trade it all to just have that problem and not have this world situation. But I hope that we capture some lessons out of this stuff. And and maybe that's the real question here, Ron is. How many times you you don't hit the missile every time? In fact, you fire a lot of test shots. How did you develop the patience through difficulty and maybe even we'll say failure? to understand that you could do this at a at a larger scale.
1: Well, well, uh, again, it's it's it, when you're telling the story out of the rearview mirror, you can you can talk about that level of determination. When you're in the heat of the battle, uh, I don't know that you can articulate it as clearly as that. So the the we knew we were onto something when large companies started to want to buy us at scale. And we we always had this, because we're enterprise guys, going back to my knowledge rules example, when we opened up, you know, we, we as a team are used to selling to big global companies. And big global companies have a whole degree of pedigree that a lot of young entrepreneurs just don't know. And there's really no way to know it without working for some of those companies for a while and spending your career working with those kinds of companies. Right. Um, there, there's a My old company was called Knowledge Rules. And I used to have an automated PowerPoint slide where a big X would go across knowledge. And then we'd write above it, procurement. Procurement rules. Getting a customer to say yes in a large company is the beginning of the battle.
0: Now, <laughs> well said.
1: Now getting that order and turning it into a, a, a contract an invoice and money in your bank account can be months, if not, get canceled multiple stages along the way. So there's a whole discipline to selling to those kinds of companies that uh, um, that is 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 very uh, unique. And so we had that. We we had these big companies that that had been following us for years. They used us for some of the crack projects that. Gave us cash flow. We had established credibility. They knew who we are. They knew we knew what we were talking about, and and so so those things give you signs of life along the way. They give you a little slivers of validation to keep going. And at any point in time, also you've only got a limited fuel tank. You've only got so much cash. Uh, you've you've you know in in the last uh, uh, almost eight years now, I've raised about twenty million dollars. And I've raised that 20 million and it seems like sounds like a lot of money right now. Well, 20 million over eight years it isn't so much money. And when you are hiring, you know, smart technology people, they're not cheap. So it's pretty easy to start burning through that. So at any point in time, you know, you're, 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 you're like the college student that's always running between the fuel light on and a quarter of a tank. So you never have the comfort of saying the needles past F we can well, come on, let's just go. We don't have to worry about it. You're always watching the fuel tank and, 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 and you're afraid of running out of gas. You, you run out of gas, you're that's the end. So, so it's those slivers of validation along the way that start to get you more and more bullish that you're onto something slivers along the way that become more like your product vision and less like your crack vision that that's a, that's a, a big deal and, and and bringing those together at the right time is what starts to, I think, uh, give you, give you the courage if that's the right word uh, or the, or the, uh, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, not, not, not stupidity, but cluelessness, something like that of, Hey, you know, let, let's, you don't know what you don't know. So you keep going. Right. Um, and And, and you know, I talked to a lot of young entrepreneurs, do not be afraid to pivot, do not be afraid to change. The companies, when I started this company eight years ago, there were a handful of companies that, that people like Gartner and Forrester thought we were all in the same space. All of those companies but me are gone. And it's because they got a lot more funding than I did out of the gate. They took that funding, they had a single idea, And they had enough money to keep funding their hubris to say-
0: Throwing good money after bad, as they say, right?
1: Absolutely. We never had that luxury. We never had so much money in the bank that we could kick back and say, we got this. So we had to constantly iterate between the reality of our product, where the market was, where the technology was, and keep that iteration going. So- Eight years later, we're still using the same core software platform principles that my partners and I started out with. We've adopted, like you adopt Microsoft Excel, we've adopted those principles to to, and fine tune them over time to be very specific to what we're doing today. So after COVID-19, GlaxoSmithKline made an outreach to Microsoft and they said, hey, we noticed that you have this, customer, this partner, MicroShare, and one of our IoT solutions that we sell to hospitals in the UK, that again, nobody in the hospital knows it's IoT, is indoor asset tracking. We put a sensor on every hospital bed and fusion machine and wheelchair, and we let hospital staff know via a, a, an app on their phone exactly where in the building those things are. You used to do those things with RFID, really expensive. You had to tear open walls, put in infrastructure. Right now, all of a sudden, I come in for pennies on the dollar and do really cool asset zoning, we call it. So Glaxo said, hey, do you think we could use that technology to track people? Nobody on this podcast ever heard the term contact tracing in January of this year, me included. No idea. What the heck's contact tracing? Um, Today, everybody in the world knows what contact tracing is. And it turns out that our technology with very minor modification could be used for contact tracing. That was the week of March 22nd. The week of April 20th, we were on the front page of the Financial Times globally. Then we made the front page of the New York Times twice. The, New, the Washington Post, Inc Magazine, the BBC did a big uh, article on us. And we now have a contact tracing solution that is not smartphone-based. Your smartphone has lots of problems with contact tracing. The first is consumer pushback. All of my personal information is on this device. Right. The last Uh,
0: thing you want to do is open it up even further and potentially break down the the wall. To the
1: government or your employer. But, But the other thing we learned, Eric, is that there's a whole bunch of the world out there where smartphones just won't work. First of all, nuclear power plants, military uh, sites, pharmaceutical manufacturing, lots of warehouse and distribution centers. You're not allowed to have your smartphone. For security reasons, they don't want you taking pictures of anything. Um, If if you worry about where Eric's been, if he tests positive for COVID-19, a phone doesn't work on a multi-story building. I know you're in downtown Toronto, but I don't know if you're in the lobby or if you're in the penthouse 30 stories up. Right. So it didn't provide the granularity we were looking for. So, so smartphone apps are good for many use cases, but it turns out that there are lots of use cases where the smartphone isn't going to work. So we provide a very low cost wearable and we track, have you been closer than six feet for more than 10 minutes? So we record contact events. We do it anonymously. So, If you have contact events, as you typically will, when you go back to work at the factory, at the warehouse, at the mining facility, if you haven't had a contact event with somebody that tested positive in more than two weeks, we delete the data. So the only time that you ever care is one day you get notified to say, hey, Eric, in the last two weeks, you had a contact event with somebody that tested positive. They don't tell you that Ron Rock tested positive. They say, somebody you had a contact event with tested positive. We'd like you to go home and get tested. And oh, by the way, now I also know everywhere in my facility, my college campus, my hospital, whatever it may be, I know where Ron was. So now I can isolate a subset of my employees and get them tested. I can shut down a part of my facility and deep clean it. When I was in London in uh, end of February, we work at a WeWork location. Uh, it's a multi-story uh, right near Paddington and somebody not related to Microshare, not even related to WeWork, tested positive. They shut the whole building down for two days and they sent us all home. Think about the economic cost of that one event. Right Now with our contact tracing, all that gets eliminated. Since that came out, Eric, we've now sold to some of the largest companies in the world. And uh, companies like GlaxoSmithKline are taking us globally. We're in 15 different countries now. Several other pharmaceuticals followed suit. The largest logistics company in the world just signed a deal with us. Uh, we're talking to many different uh, uh, university campuses around the globe. And so we took this contact tracing. And we bundled it with five of our other solutions, occupancy, predictive cleaning, environmental monitoring, touch free feedback and asset zoning. And we put that all into a clean equal, safe campaign. And so now, you know, guys like you and me, we can continue to do what we're doing from home for the next three years, no harm, no foul. But folks that work in distribution warehouses, food processing, pharmaceutical manufacturing, all of those jobs, they have no choice. They have to go back to work. How do the employers, Create an environment to best take care of the health and well-being of people using their facilities. And that's been the combustion point. So, so if we've been working on these solutions for, for the last four years, as we know them now, this incarnation, getting better and better at the pack- packaging and the pricing and the, 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 the website and making it simple to understand what COVID-19 has done. Prior to COVID-19, ESG and sustainability was a compelling event. Increasingly, people want to report how they're doing to reduce their carbon footprint to be a better citizen of the planet. But COVID-19 suddenly accelerated this compelling event. People need what we're doing right away. And so it took months of that procurement negotiation that I talk about and contracting. And, And by the way, these companies don't know how to do this either. they they, they're trying to accelerate from processes that are tried and true for decades. They're trying to cut, you know, accelerate it. We're trying to dance with them to accelerate it. And, and, and everybody has a common goal, which is we want to get these devices on our people in our ecosystem as quickly as we can.
0: It's a, uh, it's an interesting challenge of, like you said, it's, both sides of the of the procurement problem are struggling and angry and frustrated. But there's also a strange reason why, in a way, kind of like regulatory stuff, it's a it's a very careful dance of we we don't want it because it hampers freedom and innovation and and, you know, more rapid ability to do things. But in a way, it was put in for that very reason to protect us from doing bad things quickly. The unfortunate thing is the system does not differentiate between good innovation and bad innovation. The only thing that shows us that is a a hindsight, you know, rear view mirror, which is generally we add uh, objective views into, we add other things into, one of the sort of famous business books too is like Built to Last. And it talks about these incredible stories of these large organizations that were, were built for survivability and built to be able to innovate in incredible times. And out of the, I think, the five or six that are uh, case setting the book, three out of them are, are no longer in the business that was mentioned in there. And they struggled for a decade after it. So if you read Built to Last 15 years later, you'd be like, this didn't work out so well. Right. That's right. But if, but if you read the, the book now, you know uh it's actually okay they made it they adjusted they pivoted a few things but one thing that was what you really have talked about too is the understanding of making adjustments and pivoting and and congratulations too and thank you for what your organization what your team are doing to really bring this stuff and and have a, a really strong effect uh, one of the famous TED talks in a great book, actually called "On Being Wrong." Catherine Schultz, Uh, she does a great thing, and and the the visualization she has is Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And you know Wiley e. Coyote's running, 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 and then he's off the cliff, and then he sees the Roadrunner go right by, and he's on the other cliff, and he suddenly realizes he's not going to make it, and then he looks down, and and then goes. And they said that, she says that we as a society and as, as a species, we struggle from this all the time, that like you talked about the burn rate, right? We don't look at the fuel gauge or we think that there's always gonna be new fuel. <laughs> Not realizing that there's some Mad Max times ahead <laughs> where we might be fighting for for fuel. So as a as a builder, a founder, a leader, I'd love to hear, when did you see that the fuel gauge, the light was on? In hindsight, you know you got through it, but you knew, only in hindsight did you realize that you came far too close to a dangerous event for yourself or your team or somebody?
1: Oh, sure. The week of March 16th, I, I also had uh, uh, new investors that had committed a uh, a sizable amount of money to us. For us, it was five million dollars, and that was the money that was going to get me through the rest of 2020 with these big successes that we had won in Q1. And the week of March 16th, not only did I lose my biggest customers, I also lost the commitment of my investment. So, so in the fray, in the in the in the shootout of March 16th, not only did I only have the fuel light on but somebody put a bullet in my fuel tank and now it was dripping <laughs> at the bottom so 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 i'm 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 losing fuel faster than i had expected and and um and we had a there was a real definitive the moment where my partner uh, from london charles pomal he's a frenchman married an irish woman uh, lives in the uk uh, and my other partner tim Panagas, he's an mit guy living outside of boston the three of us were on the phone and, and saying, um, we we think this contact tracing might, might be the real deal. And our CTO pushed back and he said, why do we think that we can do this better than anybody else? There's some big companies that are jumping in. We had already heard that Google and Apple were jumping in with an app. Holy cow. Talk talk about a crowded space here's a little dot on the spectrum called microshare and two of the biggest companies in the world have just announced they're going to jump into contact tracing what are we thinking and and I remember we we went back and forth a couple times and and I said to my partners let's let's let the market tell us let's do our best to accommodate right now microsoft and, and Klein. Let's because it did require a minor modification to our software. We we went to Bluetooth wearables that we we and 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 because the demand was immediate, we didn't have the luxury of designing something from scratch. We had to take off-the-shelf products. We were I don't know if you know this or if any of your uh, uh, listeners know the old show MacGyver, but MacGyver <laughs> was a show that he was a guy that that you know he could he could build a car with a toothpick and a paper clip and a rubber band like he just always looked around and whatever he had he would make things happen could make a bomb out of leaves i mean he just crazy resourcefulness well we were in a macgyver moment could we take our software and other things we knew about in the market and the sensors that we'd been working with and and create contact tracing and so i knew that we weren't smart enough to answer the question is our product going to be competitive and relevant it was all too new the best thing we could do because we really had no choice our traditional business had just gone away our investors had just gone away if we don't figure this out right now then we're probably in a mode where we're going to cut the company's burn rate by 50 60 70 percent we're gonna go into a ride it out strategy until people start consuming a product that we already knew that we had, we, we knew that we hit the, the bullseye. And that was so frustrating too, because I'm going back to my investors, that we inked a $7 million a year deal for five years. It was a $35 million deal that went away. And the wow. inking of that deal validated that we had hit the missile that we, the hard work pulled off. And by things that we had zero control over, all of that vanished. And if you're talking to investors, they don't care. They don't care what the story is. Nope,
0: they just want an outsized know. return on their investment. <laughs> That's exactly
1: right. So they're just looking at the numbers and the numbers say you got no deferred revenue, you got no assets, you got no accounts receivable that begins to marry that 35 million. Yeah, none of that. So you are where you are. And so that was probably, I I didn't want to say no to contact tracing. I I had a a gut feeling that we might be on to something, but there was a very good possibility that my other partner was right, that we're, we're just going to get crushed. It's going to be a colossal waste of time, but it was going to take us about four to six weeks to figure out. Like, look, we're already into this thing. We're not going to lay off anybody in the next four to six weeks, you know. And, and and so that was, I think, the defining moment. Now, as it turns out, the world, as we got smarter about contact tracing, there was immediate blowback on the Google Apple around p- privacy. Right. Immediate and big. Germany said, "Whoa, time out, Apple and Google. We're not sure." France, uh, we're not sure. Big corporations, employees, unions gotten into the mix right away. And at the same time, I, I compare, we have to put this whole story in perspective and and even where we are today in perspective, i've I've done a lot of uh, equating Covid nineteen to nine eleven. Uh, I was I'm old enough that that nine eleven I was I was a entrepreneur. I was traveling around the world a lot. And the day that the planes flew into the towers, global air travel as we know it stopped and it never came back. Right. We then scrambled for a couple of years, but in the first six months, every airport in the world had different security procedures. Some had metal detectors, some didn't. There was a shortage of metal detectors. You couldn't buy them fast enough. People were afraid to fly. So air traffic went down and over time, as we, as we began, oh, by the way, we didn't stop flying. Just because somebody used two airplanes as missiles didn't mean that we should stop flying. So there was immediate concern about all those things. There was also the government stepped in and said, you know, for right now, uh, we're gonna start listening to everybody's phone calls. And whether it be, be proactive or reactive, the American people and most most people in general, for for periods of time, they forgave their their privacy rights for the betterment of the government getting their handle on this thing. Right. And now, and you know, in, with the benefit of hindsight, we can all talk about and debate what was right, what was wrong. But in the moment, we were there. So where are we with COVID? We're only seven months from the from 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 the planes hitting the tower. There's still a whole lot more we don't know than we know. But that doesn't mean that we haven't done that knee jerk reaction of right now, what do we do to fix this right now? So we come out with apps that invade our privacy. We come out with wearables. We make everybody work from home. We begin, is is it an airborne illness or is it things that you touch? Remember, we've gone through the journey of the first couple of months, there were a couple of companies, friends of mine, who sell cleaning, industrial cleaning products, their business went off the charts. Then there was a fateful day on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They say, eh, cleaning surfaces isn't so important. It's really airborne. And as quickly as that went up, their business went down. Back down, yeah. And we knew, I said that day and I've reminded my team early and often that could just as easily have said, contact tracing doesn't matter. So this is where luck comes into play. It could have just as easily killed every conversation that we're having. So we we realized after about four weeks that we could be competitive. Companies started to like what we were doing. Microsoft liked what we were doing. They wanted to now take us to more clients. Uh, there started to be some early press around contact tracing and people started talking about not just contact tracing, but wearables versus apps. So again, we we get smarter every day about this. So now I don't even compete against apps. If you have a situation where an app can do what you needed to do, go for it. It's cheaper. Most people have already got that smartphone anyway. Go for it. The minute you decide you've got an application that that's not going to work, Now you're in the wearables category. In the wearables, we are hands down right now, the leader globally. People put us up against other, uh, the the global logistics company put us against 17 other vendors. We won. Uh, And here's the best part, not not the best part, but a a part of it. Most people are pitching contact tracing, they still don't have it. They're gonna start shipping in January. They're gonna start shipping in March. So yeah, they're just ability- at the
0: ideation stage, right? They're trying to sell the the sell the sizzle and then hopefully they can manufacture to catch
1: up to it. Well, and manufacture is the key word there. They didn't take a MacGyver approach. They said, Hey, we we know how to do this, and then they start designing. We have concurrently been designing our own wearable that'll be available probably towards the end of Q1. And and that will do what we do even better, but I have real people using it right now. And touching on something you said a little bit earlier, one of the coolest things for us, the UK government selected us to start putting our wearables on nursing home patients in the UK. And they're running a test right now, a pretty sizable one, where they're monitoring the health and well-being of the ones with our wearables versus ones without. We're saving lives. It's like, we were passionate about helping save the planet before COVID nineteen with what we were doing with ESG and sustainability, but now we're actually saving lives, and 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 so as an entrepreneur, you you've just hit the mothership. It, it, it it's yeah, you're, you're figuring out how to build a scalable company, and it's really fun. But now you're really making a difference uh, to a lot of people that matters, and and so those, you know, you talk about slivers of validation and giving you even more excitement and ambition to where most people would be exhausted right now. We've been running at this thing forever and you're ready to fall over and say, okay, you know what? Let me just, let me stop for a while, catch our breath and 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 what, let's just reap a few of the rewards of what we've done. You're doing just the opposite. You're doubling down, you're accelerating even faster. Can we get to market as quickly as possible? And like 9-11, because a lot of people ask, are you guys are kind of a one hit wonder? What happens when COVID is is done? Uh, there is a permanent level of infrastructure globally that never went away after 9-11. And now, by the way, that global infrastructure just works. So you can get on a plane in Shanghai, Toronto or London and you know the, you know the drill, you know to take the fluids out, you know to open your laptop, you know to take your shoes off and your belt. We, we as a planet figured it out and it's part of our daily routine. I believe COVID-19 has changed us forever as a planet. We now know that a virus can stop the world on its axes. Non-negotiable, t- doesn't care if you're rich or poor, black or white, Islam or Christian or Jewish, it just doesn't matter. We're all human beings and this thing can stop us on a dime. And so this idea, and this starts to build on, you talk about connecting dots before people know that they're there. It starts to build on this idea that occupancy is the tip of the spear for everything. Well, as social beings, our utilization of occupancy, our proximity to each other, the amount of times we touch things outside of our, bubbles, our own individual bubbles, whatever they may be, are gonna matter. And I don't know, Eric, if this is the exact way that it will play out. But here's the thread I'm pulling on. I think our iWatch today keeps track of our steps, and our heart rate and our oxygen level. And we use this and insurance companies in many parts of the world, give you an iWatch for free. And if you take your 10,000 steps a day, they give you a, a discount on insurance. I think we're going to have some kind of a social density score or a social con, a, a, a social mapping score that says, "Hey, as long as you keep your mapping score under 20, you're not likely to get the flu this year. You're not likely to do this. You're not likely." And and con- combining that with your steps and your health insurance is going to give you a 50% discount. Oh, by the way, if your score is between 20 and 50, you better be sure to get your flu shot early because you know you right. you're running in the yellow. All the time, and if you're red or above, you know. Ha- and then, just like we do with our FICO scores and our 10,000 steps a day, what can you do every day, every week to start bringing your social contacting score down? And so, avoid public bathrooms when you can. Avoiding uh, uh, as much air travel as you do, or whatever it may be. The- there's going to be something that sticks. A lot of somethings that stick as we all move from, um, from, from the early days of you know, ground zero, and we're still in those early days, to what is the long-term human behavior that like 9-11 becomes the permanent. And MicroShares right in the middle of that conversation with governments, with some of the biggest companies in the world, we now have more people using con- our contact tracing solution, we believe, than anybody else in the world, we haven't met anybody that's got more. We started a user group. How cool is this? We've got some of the biggest companies in the world participating in a contact tracing user group and they're sharing best practices. They're sharing what worked and what didn't work. What's what's bumping up against legal? Are they getting any pushback from unions? How is management receiving it? How are how are employees receiving it? Are they wearing them? These are these aren't technology insights. These are human behavior on something brand new that we're all trying to figure out. And ultimately, I believe we're going to figure out a way to use all this data for the betterment of mankind, for the betterment of each individual's health to extend and improve the quality of life. And we're going to figure out how to do that while at the same time protecting privacy, protecting sovereignty, you know, to your point, regulation always you know, needs an event to catch up as well. And that's what I think is gonna happen over the next five to 10 years. And we're right at the infancy right now. And it's really exciting.
0: The uh, The interesting thing about the regulation, I remembered, of course, I worked at a financial services company through the 2008 crisis. And uh, and we had some foresight, obviously, that this was coming. And I remembered, of course, those the sort of fateful days through September, of 08. And there was like sort of the meeting of the minds, all the leaders in the finance industry. And effectively they went to the government, they said, please, please regulate us. We like they recognized they were they were caught in the crack den and unable to get out. And they realized, they said, like, we need, we need this, because we effectively, as a as an industry, we need to figure out how to stop this because they ultimately were feeling the direct pain. Then unfortunately, as humans, three weeks later, they said, no, 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 we're good. We've got to figure it figured out. We've got our money. We've got TARP, get this regulation out of here. This is gonna slow us down. When you look at the practices that we're taking on I think that at that global level, that's why it's hard to implement practices because it's very easy to resist them. But what we are doing is through like what you and the team are doing and what people are doing with your technologies. And that's the most important thing. I'm a huge fan of technology. I'm a technology nerd. And I tell people, even like at events I do for my company, I'll say, I have these like kind of opening slides, and it's just literally just big pictures of, you know, a, a doctor and, you know, a, a, a pill, you know, and I talk about. Well, I love the technology that I do and I work with and I create. I said, but imagine that using that technology, you could increase the time to market for pharmaceuticals, which means that you can bring a cure to somebody who needs it where they couldn't do it because we didn't have the capability to do it. And like this thing at the last slide is, uh, is uh, it's a little girl and everybody's sort of seen the video. It's a little little two-year-old toddler and she's got a cochlear implant. And you can see the tears in her eyes. And I said that she hears her mother's voice for the first time in her life. And no, like you watch the room and you literally people are like, <gasps> <Yeah. laughs> you hear the sounds, and you're like, you know, everybody's kind of like, oh it's dry in here. <laughs> but you just say, that's that's what we do. Yep. Okay. I'm a nerd, but this is why I'm excited about what we do. And, and I need to be excited about this technology, but this is the real outcome. You know, and to be able to do that and have a profound effect. And you know, one thing that is, you came up in some of the content that your team has on, on the site, they talked about like the, the universal contact tracing. And universal is a really tough word to use because we use it all the time. And when we think universal, and I say we meaning North America, when we say universal, we mean servicing California and New York. And Toronto, and maybe Vancouver. <laughs> that's maybe. that's our idea of universal. Like, hey, we got two countries. Maybe we'll sell it to Mexico. Like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. And there's a real great line that was in uh, one of the videos as well, and it talks about this sort of this misunderstanding that cell phones are broadly adopted.
1: That's right. So forty percent of the planet doesn't have a smartphone. Right. So when you,
0: how dangerous is it for you when you think of an idea to think universally?
1: I was fortunate enough, I mean, it's my own tiny little story but I was fortunate enough in 1981 to be an exchange student in Switzerland. I have three adult children and they've all been, they've all traveled and and studied abroad. But 1981, most people didn't do that. Uh, As a matter of fact, it was really hard to do. You had to work with the universities and you had to set up your own curriculum and you had to set up your own living arrangements. It was hard to do, but I wanted to do that. And that's the first time I ever left the country. I never looked back. I've been going to Europe and traveling globally ever since, a lot. And the fact that my partners, the three of us have been together since 1999, and we uh um one of them's a frenchman who's also fluent in german and we it's just in our dna so 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 for me and i think for the team we've always thought globally and and so many good things come from that your the dna of your company the culture begins to think globally and and I'm I'm interchanging the word globally and universally. I'm 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 using those, uh, you know.
0: Yeah, I won't. We won't. We obviously there's that that the general arrogance that we on Earth are the whole kit. But but I I, I go. I know where you're. Yeah. I, I I appreciate yeah. that you even said that because it it is funny that we we use these words like exponential and universal r- very inappropriately because uh, yeah. they sound bold and big, but. It and yep. uh, it's, it's rare actually to find somebody like that. What you've done there is—I'm <laughs> careful
1: with what the words that you use. Right. Well, and, and and universal can be geographic coverage, but also it can be lines of uh, lines of business. Right. So the fact that we're using it in mining, in manufacturing, in healthcare, in nursing homes, in college universities. Uh, in in regulated and unregulated industries. So there's also a, a, a uni- universal ubiquitousness there as well. So so it's not a one hit wonder. It's not, you know, and, and I think, you know, so we're, we're attracting lots of partners around because again, we made a very conscious decision. I mean, we're, you know, we're still a small company, early stage by most definitions. I can't be expert across all industry verticals. I can't be expert in all countries. So we are high, We are aligning ourselves with big global partners. We announced a big deal with Microland. Uh, we announced a big deal with Rackspace. We announced a deal with uh, Richardson RFPD. We're getting ready to announce a global partnership with another big SI that everybody knows the name of and they bring thousands of people across every industry and give you that rich expertise. But what's really cool, I would argue that Microsoft Excel is a universal and global product. The most widely used it's propping up businesses around the world. (laughs) And and we're doing the exact same thing for contact tracing. It's gonna be the same contact tracing, you're gonna do some minor modifications on the front end and from my perspective, it's the same product in the nursing homes and in the manufacturing facility. Same exact product. That's the that's the scalable business model for me. But that's what gives us the liberty of saying universal contact tracing.
0: So what? When in your life was the first time that you said, "So I've got this idea," and someone just right beside you said, "Oh Jesus, Ron." <laughs> you, you, you there's a certain learned behavior, but there's also, there's something that's innate. I can tell in the way that you, you think and speak and, and the problems you've taken on. When was the first time that you knew you were thinking in a different path and a different way
1: than some of the folks around you? I love that question. There's a, there's a couple and I, I didn't know the answer to this question until the last year when people started asking me that kind of question and I gave it some thought. Uh, my dad uh, was, went to a school called Gerard College here in Philadelphia for fatherless boys. His dad died when he was born. My grandmother had to put him in this home where he was raised in an institution uh, until he was 18. And so my dad learned how to do anything with his hands. And my dad came out of that school with the idea that he could do anything he could build a car, he could build a house. he could it just didn't matter. And he I grew up with that. So when I was you know twelve years old and 10 speed bikes were just coming out with the complicated gears, everybody would come to my house and I would fix them. And then in the in my late teens, I was the guy that fixed everybody's cars and I started rebuilding old cars. And then I did construction. then I was a short order cook. I, I mean, I, I did anything to make money. Right, and my dad was great. He said, "You can have anything you want. You just got to pay for it." That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. But he didn't say, "Look at how much you make, and then think about what you want." He didn't say, "Think about life through that lens." He he did it the other way. And so, um, when I was 26, um, I was selling computers for Computerland. I was one of the top reps in the country for IBM PCs um, for a period of time, and one of my biggest clients had a problem. They wanted to use these brand new laser printers, HP laser printers, with these dedicated word processing systems. And it was complicated. And they said to me, if you can figure this out, you know, we'll buy a boatload of stuff from you. So I did. I literally wrote code in basic, put it on an EEPROM chip, found somebody in California making a converter box, and. That ended up starting my first company when I was 27, I started a company called Brookrock. And we were the first company in the world to remanufacture toner cartridges. So today people take that for granted that your ink cartridges and your toner cartridges, you can remanufacture them, refill them up. Right. I was doing that in 1987, 88. And up until about two years ago, you could still, as a matter of fact, I did a, a podcast interview and a guy had done some work on me and he found you can still search the world and find Rock <laughs> products in the world. We sold that company to paper manufacturers in uh, uh, before I was 30. So that was that was my first entrepreneurial. I did two stints with Fortune 500 companies, one in temporary help, one in um uh, financial services, one of the largest credit card issuers in the world. And then uh, for a while, I worked for a publicly traded software company. Those are my three corporate experiences. Other than that, I've been self-employed. I, I, I typically say I start companies because nobody will hire me. <laughs> I, I am unemployable. I, cause I, I know what I want to do every day when I wake up and I just haven't been able to find somebody that says, Ron, we got you, man, here you go. So, um, yeah i've I've i I've believed really from the time at a very young age that there isn't anything I can't figure out if I have to
0: I remember the it, and I think that's really what it is it's uh it's something where we have very early on and I tell people I said, adversity is one of the most fantastic things that you can be presented with because if we don't like we as humans we're anti-fragile systems we are, we respond and react to our surroundings. And so when there's no adversity, when there's no difficulty, we don't build up the antibodies to that. But when you have that thing early, you know, people always sort of we look at entrepreneurs, and we look at people like affiliate marketers, and we look at people that are doing public speaking and whatever it is. And I not as 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 successful uh, in, in what you've done. But I I knew that whole thing early. I was just not, I was going to say, I'm not smart enough to know you shouldn't do it. And I would say to people, like, they're like, you know, how do the these people get this stuff? Like, they they just try it. And then they keep trying. And then they fail and they they push through the failure. And I remembered uh, hearing an interview with Sean White, famous uh, snowboarder, uh, oh, Olympic oh, and, yes, yep. and X Games champion. And someone said, like, how did you, like, learn how to do your first tricks. Then he said some, so it was like a throwaway thing, but I latched onto it. So I didn't learn how to jump, I learned how to land. And what that really teaches you is like you and your team and, and the way you've approached things, you know, like you said, the curve can drop. Say we get away from contract tracing, we solve this problem. Well, what's next? That's the landing. So that you don't learn how to do a 1080. You learn how to land from every angle so that you can do the 1080. And then, just in the same way as that curve, people said, Sean White, this is crazy. He's the only one to ever do a 1080 until somebody hit 12, right? One more half turn. Okay. The game just changed. So, what does he do? Learned the twelve, right? Mm-hmm. Can we go further? No, well, at this point, no. It's beyond the human capability with the technology and, and that that weird thing called gravity. Kinds of gets in the way if you're going beyond <laughs> twelve sixty. But the lesson that you you learned early from your dad is that we we just we can do anything, and sometimes you are just gonna have to knuckle down and do it. So if if I you would- had if you had a chance. If you could tell anybody, because that's the other thing too also, and you you did a stint, you know, long stints, right? Whatever, you in, in organizations. When you started those jobs, did you go in there, what was your goal in taking that job versus at the end of each of those times in there, what did you come away with? Like, cause I, I think about it, I'll see the question a bit further. I tell people every day I said, come to work every day and steal something. And it's not paper clips and stuff like that. So that's a felony. But I mean like come in, find a peer, find a lesson, find something that's in your organization and learn and steal that knowledge because it's there. you're surrounded by it and it's free to take. So when you having the entrepreneurial bug, being successful at 27 and 30, Grinding to success, and that's this is no, not there's no gift of success. You you ground it up, you know, you got there. So when you went to this corporate job, did you go in there thinking, I'm going to get something, or did you come out of it saying, I think I just got something I didn't realize I was going to get?
1: I, I I went in thinking that I could apply the innovative skills that I was learning to connect dots quickly and help large enterprises with lots of resources, take advantage of these new opportunities. I went in thinking that I could do that. Um, I came out with an appreciation of why they can't. And uh, a simple example, uh, I was in the credit card industry. And we were trying to make some changes that would allow you to do I, I launched the very first internet self serve website where you could go in and look at your credit card balance. You could dispute a charge. You could download your statements. I I beat American Express. American Express was the most popular, but we launched ours before them, And it was Internet based. In order to do that, I needed to get into the back end systems of where all your financial services are stored. I learned um, first with frustration and then later with respect that there are certain things in society like uh, the way that your airbag works, like the way that your pacemaker works, like the way that that these now auto driving capabilities work, like the way that banking works, that are simply non-negotiable, that, that, that has to work. It can't not it can't have a bug, it can't break. And so that means that the simplest of ideas might have to go through six months of process to to implement the simplest of idea and there's literally 200 people between your idea and implementation every one of them has the authority to say no and they can say no just because and and they're just you think it's just because they say no because they know that it coming down is non-negotiable it 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 doesn't stop and so that's where in in both of my big corporate experiences i i, I learned an appreciation for for big enterprise mentality no, no matter what industry you're in no matter how big or or, or how, how new or now old over time if you get big enough uh, everybody has a job and so you if you if you don't understand that as an entrepreneur you will bang your head against the wall more often than you already do, and ultimately you won't be successful. So so learning that that if I go to, I'm, I'm just making this up, if I go to a company like American Express with the greatest idea to solve a problem that's universal and global, and, and I know that American Express in their array has all the resources they need to do it, the idea is great. Nobody else has the idea. Executing that, could take years and a very different skill set than most entrepreneurs have <clears throat> and has a 99% chance that it'll never see the light of day because of all the people that can say no. If you don't understand that intimately, you're gonna struggle selling your innovation to, to organizations. So that's what I learned. Uh, so I went in kind of a, you know, wet behind the ears, kicking ass, <laughs> I came out humbled and appreciative and smarter how to manage those kinds of opportunities going forward. the, uh,
0: the magic of, of listening, learning, adapting, you know uh, so if you if somebody's 18 years old, and I'm sorry, really right where I'm going over here, I'm stealing your time, speaking of stealing, just one last thing. you, you, you meet an 18 year old and they say, Ron, I'm, I'm a fan of your story. What should what should I do? <laughs> uh, the bold life question.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was I was talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs who were all getting their MBAs uh, several years ago, and I realized, by the way, I was the least educated guy in the room, which well, that's a different conversation, but I was telling them the story of risk. And I used to have a cartoon character of a big man in a suit, and he's sitting on a little can of TNT dynamite, kind of like <laughs> your, kind of like your Roadrunner analogy. Yeah. And I said, you know, being an entrepreneur, the, the probably the biggest uh, attribute is your tolerance for risk, and most people that I meet, Eric, don't have that, and you're not going to learn it in school. You're, because, because ultimately you're gonna take your money and other people's money and you're gonna place a bet. And that's where rubber meets the road. And, and most people just will, you've either got that, that, that inkling of self-confidence, that inkling of stupidity, that inkling of, of all that stuff together to be okay with that level of risk or you're not. And if you're not, you will never take the, you, you might be great working at a startup. You might be great as the number two guy or the number 10 person, but but if you don't have that ability to take that call at that moment, that's, I think that's the one intangible. So at the end of this presentation, a guy came up to me, he was so excited, very similar to your question. He said, Ron, I, I just, this is the greatest thing. He goes, I've got this amazing idea. He said, "I I, I just can't get my wife to to come on board and 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 you know help help me get the money, and I said, dude, I hear you. I said, I'm sorry. The psychology department is a few rows down. That's, <laughs> way, that's way out of my pay grade. I can't help <laughs> you with that. But 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 I've heard many entrepreneurs say, oh, my husband or my wife won't let me do this. Um, that really, that's an excuse. That, that what that says to me right out of the gate is you you looking in the mirror really don't have the risk profile because it's it's great to blame it on somebody else my parents my spouse my 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 boss there's a million reasons why you shouldn't take the risk and you don't have to look really hard to find them um it's the you know i i i often will have many times employees team members Ron, we can't do this, and they—they they put so much energy into telling me why they can't do it. And I said, "Okay, are you done? Are, are, are you great? Are, are you good? Okay, good. You put all that energy into building the case why you can't. Now I want you to go one step further, just one step further, because you understand all the reasons it can't be done. Go one more step. Figure out a way to get it done. <laughs> and it almost always works. Yeah, it almost always works it's just that as human beings it's easy to wake up every day and let the world tell us what we can't do because it's it's hard out there and there's a lot of things fighting against us it's easier to just go with the flow and and that's the so if that 18 year old is asking me asking me that i'll just say you know what's your tolerance for risk and 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 i can talk about that at a much deeper level because it's it sounds like a a contrite question. There's lots of ways to explore that, where you can really do some soul searching. Um, but you're either there or you're not. And then everything else, everything else you can learn, get from mentors, all that great stuff. But sooner or later, you're going to roll the dice. And if the dice come up one number, you win. And, 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 and if they come up another, you lose. And I use dice because no matter how smart you are, no matter what your tolerance for risk is luck, is a big part of it. And you gotta know it's one of the reasons I always like chess more than backgammon, because backgammon, the most skilled players in the world, can lose because they're rolling the dice poorly. Chess is pure skill. Yeah. Pure skill. You're not lucky you're not in chess. You're you're better than your opponent, or you're not. In 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 backgammon, great game, but damn it, those dice, <laughs> right? Right? That's life.
0: It's uh, and it's like you said, it's very easy for us to look for, you know, the excuse to absolve ourselves of the responsibility. And, and it's a human nature thing. It's not a it's part of a protective thing keeps us like, hey, I could run across, you know, I could run across this, you know, grassy plain. It's a couple of tigers over there, but I'm let's just do it. <laughs> There's a certain amount of like maybe we don't need to do this, but somebody is going to say, I can totally do this. And they're going to say, Hey, I'm going to wait for the gazelle to go first. Then I'm going for it. That's the entrepreneur. Oh. <laughs> and the uh, they're good lessons. Thank you, Ron. This has been fantastic. I I could literally spend all day uh, taking lessons from you. And, and again, you know uh, a true and, and heartfelt thank you for what you and the team are doing to really have a, a powerful and profound effect on what we can do as a society. We got a big problem to solve. And I appreciate that, that you and, and folks like yourself are, are willing to, to take that problem on. So it's, it's much appreciated.
1: Well, you're very welcome, Eric. Thank you also for having me through podcasts like this. It helps us get our message out. And for me, it's a, it's a lot more enjoyable when, when folks like you do the work, uh, you ask the smart questions, You put it in perspective for your listeners. So I appreciate what you're doing as well. So thank you. Excellent.